Welcome to the podcast for Icon Church. We are a Seattle-based community that believes all people are icons of the invisible God, made in his image to reflect his glory and grace. Well, tonight um, we are not just starting a church, uh, we're starting a new sermon series. And so if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, Over the next 12 weeks, we will go through the first 12 chapters of Genesis, and we're going to do kind of a a mashup thing with this series. Uh, Some of you were there on Friday night. We had our first Intersect event, uh, which is a kind of series of conversations about the intersection of faith and life, faith and culture. And a woman named Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin came out. Uh, She is from Boston, but she or she lives in Boston, but she's British. Uh, She was a Cambridge. PhD and worked for Veritas Forum and all kinds of smart things. And basically, the whole lecture she gave was a series of quotes from her Harvard friends. Uh, and so it was great. It was uh, very credible. And she's got that accent, and it's, it was great. So what we're doing for this series is she wrote this book called Confronting Christianity, uh, answering the 12 biggest questions uh, posed to the world's largest religion. And uh, what we're doing is kind of a mashup between Genesis and her book, Confronting Christianity. And so we're calling it Confronting Genesis. Eh? See what I did there? And uh, we're going to take on kind of these big questions about life and culture and all these things that are addressed in the very first book of the Bible. And so um, one of the things that I think is interesting about how God put the Bible together was that he spent the majority of the beginning, all of Genesis, laying down this foundation of understanding, like this, this big picture worldview that shapes so much of how we think, so much of the assumptions that we have as Westerners in general, um, is shaped by, in fact, just the first three chapters of Genesis, but certainly the first 12. So, so much of our culture, so much of what we just think is normal was, was really given to us uh, by this book of Genesis. And so um, we're going to talk about things like human dignity. We're going to talk about work and rest and gender and sexuality and science and suffering and evil and judgment and all of these fun, fun things um, that we get to talk about, and we're going to do that from Genesis. So um, I want to say one thing. I will be leaning heavily on Dr. McLaughlin's book. So two things on that. One, you should definitely buy it. It's a fantastic book. Um, for the rest of the series, we'll, we're selling them for 10 bucks. You Seriously, you can't get them any cheaper than 10 bucks. Uh, even Amazon, they're angry with us. We're selling them for 10 bucks. Um, so you got to read the book. Second, there are going to be moments where you go, oh, he just stole that from the book. Yeah. I did. I am. I will. I I promise you that I definitely will. Um, So uh, I'm telling you now so that I don't have to keep saying it every single week. I'm borrowing heavily from the book. Okay. So that's the, I don't get it. So if I say something, you're like, wow, that's really cool. It's probably from the book. If you say, if you hear something, you're like, ah, I don't get it. That's probably me. Okay. So read the book. It's fantastic. And and that's what we're going to do for this next uh, 12 weeks, all the way. It'll take us to uh, January. Uh, one of the things, sorry, to December. One of the things we do each week is uh, Q&A, and I love Q&A. So I'm going to teach. While I'm teaching, there's a number in your bulletin. Text a question. We won't have time to get to all the questions, but we'll take kind of the best or most relevant or most interesting two or three. Um, I think the people who choose the questions, uh, it's their goal to stump me. 
I think that's how they choose them. So, uh, so ask hard questions because you're more likely to get them answered, okay? Here we go. We've been told and maybe even believed this idea that philosophers call the secularization thesis, but most of us wouldn't have that kind of language. We would just say that um, we have heard certainly that as education increases, as prosperity increases, as culture becomes more and more kind of scientifically oriented, that the expectation would be that religions in general, and especially supernatural religions like Christianity in particular, will kind of die out. That as we become more rational, we will rely less on worldviews that are mystical and supernatural. And this was a thesis that was formed in the 1960s that expected us, certainly by now, to have seen a massive diminishing of the influence of religion in the world. And, and this was, a, a, by all accounts, a, a sound thesis. The problem has been that it was dead wrong. It was dead wrong. Now, it's true that um, there has been a decline in the uh, kind of self-identification of religion worldwide. That is true, and it's especially true in the West, but that obscures two really important things. First, while those who identify as religious in, the, in Western Europe and North America in particular has been in decline, the, the kind of statistic or the expectation for those who are highly committed to their faith, regular churchgoers, has basically stayed steady for the last 60 years. So as, as, as culture has shifted and it's become less helpful or there's less of an incentive for those who aren't Christian and never really were but always went to church and kind of identified as Christian, as the incentive diminishes for them to do so, they do so less. But since the 1960s, basically, those who have said religion is very important to me and I'm highly committed to it, that number has stayed basically the same. Now, not only that, but while this is kind of generally true in the West, it doesn't reflect worldwide trends. So according to the Pew Research Center, by 2060, the world is expected to be more religious than it is today. Christianity is expected to see kind of moderate growth from 31 to 32 percent and retain kind of its position as the largest religion in the world. Islam is expected to grow by about 10 percent between now and 2060, while Hinduism and Buddhism are expected to decline slightly. Judaism will remain about the same. And atheism, agnosticism, and kind of nunism as one big category is expected to decline worldwide from 16% down to 13%. Now, some of this is due to birth rates. Religious people tend to breed at higher levels than non-religious people. And in fact, religious people tend to have more sex than non-religious people. And I read that and thought, is there any other apologetic I need to make? Could we just, can we stop now? Jesus, believe him, you'll have more sex. Okay. But, and Dr. McLaughlin writes this in her book, she says, it may be a comfort to secularists who would rather imagine believers outbreeding them than outthinking them, 
But it's not the case, as predicted, that increased education would lead to increased secularization. Worldwide, Jews and Christians are still the most educated groups, and they have the smallest educational gap between men and women. That's important. Jews and Christians have the most educated women in the world, most educated overall, and the smallest gap between men and women. That's significant. In fact, highly educated Christians are more likely to be committed weekly churchgoers, statistically. So why have we heard the opposite story so loudly and so dramatically? And if I'm honest, living here in Seattle and we moved here, my family moved here from San Francisco, it certainly feels like the world is becoming more secular and it seems like the world is changing in that way. And in some sense, it is, okay? According to a study called The American Freshman, Incoming college students who claimed no religion rose from 20% to 30% in the years between 2006 and 2016. That's a lot. In 10 years, it rose from 20% to 30%. 16% of that 30 said uh, they, are, they kind of claim no religion, they're nuns. 8.5% are agnostic, and 6.4% are atheists. Now, that's a significant change, and it's something that we need to pay attention to, but before we kind of freak out and just assume all of the world's universities are these hyper-secular places, that same study showed that 60% of incoming freshmen still identify as Christian, meaning there are 10 times as many freshmen, or excuse me, freshmen, it feels like there's 10 times as many freshmen, aren't there? 10 times as many Christians as atheists. And what's more is that that change seems to be kind of monocultural because in historically black colleges, 85% of students identify as Christian and only 11% identify as agnostic, atheist, or none. In fact, atheism in general is overrepresented by white males, of which I have no personal problem with being one, but the median Christian in the world today is a woman of color, or the median atheist in the world today is an older white male. This doesn't prove anything, but it found it interesting. So in spite of all this, Peter Berger, who was one of kind of the foremost advocates for secularization in the 1960s, recanted his earlier claim saying, the world today, with some exceptions, is as furiously religious as it ever was, and in some places more so than ever. This means that a whole body of literature by historians and social scientists loosely labeled as secularization theory is essentially mistaken. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, said something even more strong. said, after nearly three centuries of utterly failed prophecies and misrepresentations of both present and past, it seems time to carry the secularization doctrine to the graveyard of failed theories and there to whisper, rest in peace. Now, for many of us here who are Christians, this should be good news. The world is actually not secularizing as quickly as we might feel like it is, and there is still some hope, and so we kind of take some solace in that. But I would argue that no matter who you are and what you believe, because Christianity, religion in general, should find this to be good news. Why? 
Because Christianity, religion in general, but Christianity in particular, is good for you. Like, statistically good for you. Okay? So, Tyler Vanderweel, he is a Harvard professor of public health, wrote an article in USA Today called, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. And citing his own work, argues that regular church attendance, quote, reduces mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, increases optimism, self-control, and sense of purpose, while lowering rates of depression, suicide, and divorce. NYU social psychologist, noted atheist Jonathan Haidt, said surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, longer-lived, and more generous to charity and to each other than our secular people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and of their blood, literally. So even if you are here and you're not a Christian and you would consider yourself a very secular person, you should be happy that overall, even if it's not you, that overall the world is still religious and maybe even increasingly so because the religious people in our city are carrying the bulk of the kind of healthy and helpful activity. They are the ones giving money to your chosen charity. They are the ones giving blood at disasters. They are the ones kind of slinging, slinging uh, sandbags when the, when the floodwaters come. And I thought last night it was happening. Um, but these are, if I can say so, the best people in your town for your town. Statistically. So the claim of tonight's is that Christianity brings meaning to your life in a way that, that atheism and agnosticism or kind of a vague sense of nunism simply cannot. Now, am I arguing that if you are here and you're not a Christian that you don't have meaning in your life? Not at all. That's not what I'm arguing. But what I am going to argue and what I'm going to ask of you is that you would ask yourself that question. So I'm going to make an argument that Christianity is the means by which we might find real meaning in life. And I, if you disagree with that statement, I would just, just challenge you, ask you to ask yourself, where really do I find meaning? Upon what foundation, philosophically or theologically, would I say my life matters, the things I feel are real, the things I want are true? How do you build that case? How do you build that life? That's what I want to talk about this evening. And to do so, we will finally go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1.1, first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would illuminate your scriptures, 
We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would reveal yourself to us in a powerful way, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would allow our eyes to see what we've never seen, that you would allow our ears to hear what we've never heard, that you would allow our hearts to understand and accept what we never have before. And we ask that you would do that by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Christianity begins with a claim. Christianity begins with the claim that God created the heavens and the earth. And, and there are a million things packed into that one simple sentence. Because if God created the world, and if God is who the rest of the Bible says God is, that, that then God created this whole world with a particular purpose in mind, with ends in mind, with design in mind, that this is not random. That what we see around us is not accidental. That what we see around us is not whatever we decide that it is, but that there is some intelligence behind it designing each and everything for a reason and for a purpose. Christianity begins with that presupposition that we can look at one another and see kind of sentience. We can see intelligence. We can see uh, autonomy. We can see agency. We can see thought process. We can see uh, kind of uh, love and desire and all of the things that we kind of grow up naturally believing about each other. All of that began with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the claim that was the foundation for science, as we'll discuss next week, for human dignity, as we'll discuss in two weeks, for, for much of Western civilization began with this sentence. Now, this sentence is important for us because, especially in this conversation that we're having, because it is the exact opposite beginning from what much of our culture and, and much of either an explicit atheism or kind of an implicit atheism would begin with. In fact, an MIT professor by the name of Alan Lightman says this. He says, our consciousness and our self-awareness create an illusion that we are made out of some special substance, that we have some kind of special ego power, some I-ness, some me-ness, some unique existence. But in fact, we are nothing but bones, tissues, gelatinous membranes, neurons, electrical impulses, and chemicals. We humans have an illusion of I-ness, an illusion that we are unique beings, real moral entities, but it's just an illusion. We are stuff he says, like donuts. Now, I'm a big fan of donuts, so I don't think I take as much offense at that as maybe he intends, because donuts are pretty great, but this is the beginning. Like, this is where an atheistic worldview, when taken down to its honest foundations, has to begin, that we are bones and connective tissues, and my favorite phrase, gelatinous membranes. Our goal this week is to use that in a sentence, okay? 
that this is all we are, and we have some kind of illusion of a sense of self. We feel like we are sentient and autonomous and free-thinking, and we think we have a kind of an existential sense of self, but we're wrong. We're deluded. We aren't people. We aren't beings. We are things. No different from a donut or a rock or a music stand. We are a thing. Now, there are a lot of problems with this, but I think the most powerful one is this. No one actually lives this way. No one actually lives this way, including MIT professor Alan Lightman, who said the words, he does not live as if he were a donut. He lives as if he were a sentient human being with desires and wants and awareness and all of the things that we take for granted. Peter Singer, another very famous atheist who is one of my favorite atheists because he is incredibly honest and takes uh, kind of this worldview of atheism to its logical conclusions and says, like, um, humans don't have inherent dignity. They cannot. That idea of inherent dignity of a human is a Christian idea, and if we take away Christianity, we simply cannot say that humans have inherent dignity. It's just, it's illogical. And so he supposes that we should value people and everything kind of by their, their utility in the world, what they contribute to the world. And so kind of famously, in his estimation, an adult cow has more value and dignity than a human baby. Because an adult cow has far more utility than a human baby does. It contributes far more to society. Okay. Well, that's True if you've ever been around a baby. I mean, come on, they're not that helpful. No, it's true if your presupposition is an atheistic world where we are not endowed with inherent dignity by our creator, but that everything is a random materialistic universe. It does make sense. The problem, again, is, though, that Peter Singer doesn't live that way. And Alan Lightman doesn't live that way. And Christopher Hitchens doesn't live that way. And Richard Dawkins doesn't live that way. So when your worldview only makes sense in the vacuum of academia, you've got a problem with your worldview. Christianity, on the other hand, says something really different. Christianity says that you have purpose. Christianity says that you were made in the image of God. Christianity says that you were made to reflect God's character and who God is, that he stamped you with himself, and that you have inherent dignity because of that. Christianity says that you were created for perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with one another and perfect relationship with the rest of God's creation and perfect relationship with yourself, and you have a self. Christianity says that God gave you a reason for being, a cultural mandate, as we call it. We'll talk about it here in a couple of weeks, later in chapter one. That we were given a job, we were given a purpose. The Greek word is telos, a purpose for which we were made. There is an end for which you were created. That's what Christianity says, and I would argue it is how we live. 
We live as if that were true. We backpack through Europe to discover ourselves. That implies that there is a self to discover. I remember I, I did uh, theater acting. Well, theater is probably a better description of what I did, not acting. Um, but in high school, and I remember one of the plays that I was in, I, I had this voice basically since I was like four. And, um, and so I got all the dad roles uh, in, in all of these plays. And once I got to play the chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because he just was like big and yelled a lot. And uh, otherwise it was dads. And, and I remember one play I was in, I was the dad and I had a wife and we were, you know, had this thing on stage and whatever. And over the course of time as we were doing the play, I started to think, gosh, I think this girl likes me. And I, and I remember thinking, yeah, like, that's cool. I, I, she's, she seems nice. Like, I, okay, let's see, uh, let's see what could happen here, right? And I, and I became kind of more and more convinced until the day came where I kind of said something like, hey, so is this a thing? And she looked at me like, we're in a play. I am acting like I like you. This is what we're doing here. Like, are you not aware that you're in a play, right? And so what felt so real to me was in fact not real at all. And I think actually there is something in us that always responds this way. In fact, uh, this is a bit of a diversion, but I think magazines like People Magazine are built on this human instinct and desire. And here's what I mean. I, I came of age in the era of Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan movies, right? And, and so Sleepless in Seattle was like big for me, which was prophetic, right? Can't sleep. Um, and and, and I, so I've had this experience, I'm sure you have too, where you see two people on stage that have this chemistry and you just think, gosh, they're just made for each other and this is so great that they actually like each other and they've got this chemistry and it's so good. And then what we see is on the newsstand in People Magazine, we see, oh my gosh, they fell in love. I knew it, I knew it was real. I could just tell that what was happening there was real. There's an instinct in us that looks around our world and says, yeah, this is real, this is, this is. And what atheists argue is that basically, yeah, you feel these things, you, you're experiencing sentience, you're experiencing I-ness, a sense of agency and self, you experience love and you experience pain, you experience all these things, but they're not actually real because you're not real. You don't have a purpose, so, so it's actually not it's not actually happening. And they'll argue that that's okay. Because why can't we, can't we just experience those things? Do they have to actually be real in order to be meaningful? And everything in us says, yes. Yes. Yes, of course it does. Of course that matters. And so there's this like cognitive dissonance that happens for atheists where they go, none of it's real, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that, and that actually makes sense to almost no one. Atheism is one of those things you, 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 can, you can be just smart enough to be an atheist, but you, can, you can't be dumb enough. I don't know. I think I messed that up. But it just seems like they're trying too hard. They're thinking too hard. Because we look around the world and we go, no, this is, it's got to be real or else it's not a thing. 
It's got to be real or else it doesn't make sense. Second, in verse 2, it says, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. From the very beginning, Christianity describes the beginning of all things as chaos and creation as the ordering of that chaos. And as we'll find as the story continues, that sin enters the world and brings chaos back into that world, a reintroduction of chaos. And that is the only world we know, this kind of, this world of chaos and the pain that is the inevitable result of chaos. Pain and suffering is the shared human experience. No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, every single one of you has experienced pain and suffering and the effects of sin. Atheism and agnosticism cannot tell you what your pain is. In fact, for the consistent atheist, your pain is not real. It can't be. Why? Because one, you are not real in any meaningful sense. So what you experience in the world as pain and suffering is just firing synapses and kind of biological response, but it's not real or meaningful in any useful sense of those words. And second, because if you have no objective way to understand what ought to be, you cannot say that anything is wrong. So what is suffering? If you have no objective way things for what things should be, no purpose, no telos, no way, no vision for the way things ought to be, how can you say anything is suffering? Because suffering implies something that isn't as it ought to be, and because you don't have a straight line, you cannot tell what is crooked. And a consistent atheist like Richard Rorty, who's a philosopher, says this. He says, there is no answer to the question, why not be cruel? Why not be cruel? So for the atheist, your pain just is. It hurts because you feel it, but it doesn't mean anything. You mourn when someone dies, but it doesn't mean anything. You feel love and intimacy, but it doesn't mean anything. It's just firing synapses, biological response. You have no grounds to say that anything is wrong. You have no grounds to say that anything is unjust. You have no grounds to say anything, but I'd prefer that that not happen. That's the best we can say. But for Christians, this is not so. For Christians, we can say this is wrong and this is right. We can say that this is unjust because we know what is just. We can say that this is pain and suffering. We can mourn death because we know death is an invader into God's universe. And so we can shake our fist at injustice and evil, and we can name it as evil because we know that God created things with a purpose. We have, as some have described it in our world, an epidemic of loneliness and despair. 
In the New York Times this morning, Ross Douthat wrote an article about the deaths of despair, and he said this, and he said, Senate's, the Senate's Joint Economic Committee charts the scale of the increase in despair in America. There was a doubling from 22.7 deaths of despair per 100,000. These include uh, deaths from depression and suicide and all of these kinds of things. 22.7 deaths of despair per 100,000 Americans in 2000 to 45.8 per 100,000 in 2017, easily eclipsing all prior 20th century highs. In all of the last 119 years, today, in a moment of great prosperity in our country, we suffer from more deaths from despair than at any other time, including great recessions and world wars and some of the darkest moments in human history. And yet today, more people suffer from deep depression and despair than ever before in America. And I think part of that is that we as a culture have lost our ability to say this is what matters and this is what's true and this is evil and, and broken and wrong and it is an affront to what we know is good. And when we cannot make sense of what is good and what is evil, their despair is quick to follow because we don't even have the tools we need to make sense of the world. So we have these feelings of pain and feelings of loss and feelings of displacement, but no words that we can put on them to describe them. Because the moment we say something is evil, we know that that has to mean something. And it triggers all of these other questions about who defines what is good and who defines what is evil. And when we don't have an objective truth like the gospel, we have no ability to name those things either. Christianity says that your pain is real and your pain is meaningful. That it suggests what all of us know is true, that the world is not as it should be. We can say this wholeheartedly and with theological foundation. Because God had intention in his creation, the failure of that intention hurts. And that pain is made to awaken your heart to the, the, the falseness of this world. C.S. Lewis, very famously in The Problem of Pain, says pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain reminds us this isn't right. This isn't good. It's not how it's supposed to be. It reminds us of the failure of all of the things around us to be what they claim that they can be. But it doesn't end there. We are not left in our real meaningful pain. There's more. Back to verse 2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Christianity provides purpose. Christianity explains our pain. And Christianity provides the presence of God in our lives. I don't know if you saw this. There was a, a really remarkable interview between Anderson Cooper and uh, Stephen Colbert. I, I saw it on Twitter, and I just saw a little bit of it, but it was really, really good. Now, I want to read for you um, a, a piece of that interview. They got onto the topic of suffering and pain. 
And if you didn't get to see the interview, just Google Anderson Cooper, Stephen Colbert, pain, suffering, and Tolkien, and, and you'll find it. They're talking about suffering, and they both experience really deep personal suffering. And Anderson Cooper says this. He says, one of the things my mom would often say is that, she, she said, I should never ask why me. Never ask why me. Like, why did this happen to me? She would always say, why not me? Why would I be exempt from some of what has befallen countless others over the centuries? I think that's another thing that has helped me. Think, yes, of course, why not me? This is part of being alive. Suffering is, you know, the sadness, the suffering. These are all, you know, you can't have happiness without having loss and suffering. This is Anderson Cooper. Stephen Colbert says this. He says, and in my tradition, and, and uh, Colbert is Catholic, he says this, and in my tradition, that's the great gift of the sacrifice of Christ, is that God does it too. He suffers too. You're, you're really not alone. God does it too. The presence of God is the final reason that Christianity provides life with meaning. God made us for a purpose. We experience the pain of unrealized purpose, unrealized telos, but we're not left there. God was there in creation, hovering over the waters. He was in the midst of all of that chaos. He was there in the garden when all of the chaos had been ordered. He was there after Adam and Eve reintroduced that chaos. He was there as Israel rebelled and repented and rebelled and repented and rebelled and repented. He was there on earth in the form of Jesus. He stepped into the ultimate pain and suffering on the cross. And the great hope of the gospel is that one day we will be eternally in his presence in the perfect reordering of creation. And until that day when he reorders it all back together and, and we are there eternally in his presence, until that day, we can now experience his presence. He is here with us. He didn't just set in motion this world, give it purpose and watch to see if we would follow his directions. He doesn't just come and die and leave and believe it and buy it. No, he is with us. His presence is here. His spirit is here because God wants nothing more than for us to know him and to be with him. And the thing he wants the most is the thing that he will get. So he's here. We can speak to him through prayer. We can, when we kind of learn how to listen, we can hear him speak to us. He's present with us in the scriptures. He's present with us in our community. We reflect to each other the image of God, and we can be symbolic representations of his presence. But he's also just with us. Because the thing we know about pain is that we are either just coming out of it, we're in the midst of it, or we're about to be in it. It's the only constant in this world. The pain that we experience and the presence of God with us.
One of the beauties of Christianity is in the wholeness of its vision. Christianity teaches that God created all things on purpose and with purpose. It teaches us that each and every one of us was formed by our divine Father and stamped with His image. It teaches us that our pain is real and our pain is wrong, that it shouldn't be. It wasn't how God intended for us to experience His world. So we can rightly and fully mourn, crying out for justice and naming things as wrong and evil. But we are not left in the misery of our pain. We are not hopeless about injustice. Christianity teaches that God desires justice and redemption even more than we do. So much so that he took it upon himself to bring it about. God created, God redeems, God restores, God renews. The call of the gospel, the ask of Christianity, is not to follow the right rules or even just to bow to the right God as if it were just a kind of a multiple choice question. But the call of Christianity is to be brought back into the fold, to allow God to restore you back to what you were made for, to make you who you are. Richard Dawkins looks at reality through the lens of his worldview and sees a universe that, quote, has precisely the properties we should expect it. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. He's wrong. He's wrong for a number of reasons, but if, if for no other reason, he's wrong because none of us is looking for that. All of us, each and every person in this room and each and every person walking around this building today is looking for something far deeper and far truer and far more meaningful and has the hopeful expectation of finding it. We Look at reality through the lens of Christianity and we see at bottom a loving creator who was and is and will always be with us. All right, we're going to look at uh, a couple of questions here that have come in that are really, really good questions. Um, one of the things that we want to establish here culturally at ICON is, uh, is that we want the church to be a place where we can ask good questions and try to get good answers and discuss big, hard topics uh, pretty openly. So question number one says, the thesis of your discussion seems to be that there are benefits to us and to society for the acts of following Jesus. How do we go from simply acting out the tenets of Christianity to reap those benefits, selfishly even, to getting into a loving, selfless relationship with Christ? It's a great question. And um, the only thing I might quibble with to begin is uh, I'm not sure that my thesis was uh, that this activity nets us these benefits. Um, more that uh, there is, uh, I, I think that that is evidence not final evidence by any means, but evidence that um, there is uh, essential good in the, the worldview and life that is produced by this, as you say, a loving, selfless, selfless relationship with Christ. And I think the reason why that's compelling to me is uh, the, the atheists, kind of the new atheists, will say things like religion poisons everything, that God is not good, that the, you know, kind of the Christian worldview and Christianity in general does more harm than good to society. And that's just simply not true. 
It, it's just statistically simply not verifiably true at all. And so there is a sense in which we say, hey, listen, these are the kind of counterclaims against Christianity that just don't hold up to kind of basic statistical scrutiny. So let's address those and kind of set that aside as an idea that in fact, uh, religious practice is an inherent good for society in all of these very demonstrable ways. So I don't mean to say like, hey, let's just do the Christian things because they're good for us. It's more to say, listen, this the evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity is that when it's applied in the world, it does great good for the world, right? As a way of saying like, hey, this is, uh, I've quoted this before, but one of my favorite theologians, a guy by the name of Stanley Hauerwas, talks about the grain of the universe, right? That God made the world to be in such a way that if we live in line with the grain of the universe, that things will go better for us. And that Christianity is that grain of the universe, that acting out Christianity is better than, so to be specific, Telling the truth is better than lying. You will get in less trouble if you tell the truth than if you lie. Now, four-year-olds don't believe this, 40-year-olds don't believe this, and we all still lie, but it's the truth, right? Like that, that's what actually works. So I don't mean to say that we can just do the things and not have that selfless, loving relationship with Christ, because over time, that's the only thing that will create that consistent desire to live out that Christian life is if it, it is founded on a relationship with Christ. Question two, will we be spending all 12 weeks creating an us versus them culture? <laughs> Maybe? No, uh, definitely not. Uh, and, I, and, and, and if I did that tonight, I, I apologize. It's not my desire. But my desire is to draw hard lines between what we believe and the kind of logical conclusions of it and what the world around us believes and teaches and is proponents of and propagandizes uh, that is very different. And so uh, we might say, like, we have to be able to tell the truth from the counterfeit. So no, I hope that we don't create an us versus them culture, but I do think that as Christians or as not Christians, who, as some of you are probably here today, you ought to know the difference and ought to know the difference and explore the difference between what it is that you believe and what it is the people around you believe and the, and the kind of logical conclusions of those things. And that kind of dovetails, and I'll answer this third one quickly because I'm out of time. What to say to an atheist who may listen to the challenges brought in today's sermon but still prefers materialism as more, quote, reasonable because we all know we can touch, sense, and measure physical reality as a way to keep us all honest about our claims about what is real. But who finds it epistemically unjustified to assert belief in a God who cannot be seen, touched, or measured, especially when there appears to be so many opinions about religious, uh, from religious people about what the unseen spiritual world is really like. Now, the only person who understood that is the person who sent it. So whoever you are, I will just say this to wrap up. There's a book that just came out by Christian Smith called Atheist Overreach in which he talks about the ways in which atheism has overclaimed what it can accomplish and what it can be and what it can do in real life. 
And so my, my challenge to you who might say, well, at the end of the day, atheism is more reasonable, I would challenge you to say, is that true first? And, and second, why would materialism or a materialistic observable method of, you know, kind of uh, judging a thing, why is that preferable to begin with? That is not how you live your life. If you chose your mate based on purely objective materialistic means, you probably don't have much of a marriage. This is not how we do life. By, by kind of judging the world materialistically. It's just not how we do it. So why would we then hold Christianity and religion in general to this materialistic standard that you don't hold really anything else in your life to? We are whole beings. We are not just physical beings. So why would we, why would we play that game? And so I would, I would push gently, firmly to think harder about that and to think a little bit more holistically about how we, how humans live in the world, because it's not materialistically. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.